Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 111 and 112, which begin with the Mariner lighting flares to see in the dark and end with Enola seeing two menacing fins swim by. Our special guest this week is none other than Alex Keown from the Atoll YouTube page. Whoa, thank you, Rick. Julia, I'm so glad to be here. Oh my God. <laughs> this is like a really an honor for me. I'm dead serious. I'm such a fan of what you've been doing with Waterworld right now. The feeling is 100% mutual because I can't count on one hand the number of times that I have mentioned the Atoll YouTube page because you are such a well of information springing up in the desert that seems to be talk about this movie you know i'm just pulling from different sources just making these videos it's so cool that we have two sources of water world content on the internet right now that are like happening simultaneously so it's just yeah big fan of you guys and i'm super honored to be here to talk about this really cool two minutes of water world before we get into the clip, I want to know what started you down this path of not devoting your life to Waterworld, but devoting an entire YouTube page to this content. A little background, I run a YouTube channel called The Atoll, where I do deep dives into different aspects of Waterworld from the production to the lore to also just some bizarre things that I've collected off of eBay some water world promotional materials and things like that. But originally, I grew up loving the film. I grew up in central New Hampshire on a lake and was always into sailing. And this film came out when I was like, I think eight or nine. And it just was an action sailing movie. And I just immediately latched onto that and just have loved to revisit over the years. And I've always wanted to do some kind of fandom project around it originally thinking of doing some kind of fan film or something, but then kind of landed on aggregating all of the Waterworld information that I could into YouTube videos, and that's what I do now. The mention of a Waterworld fan video, I cannot wrap my head around the logistics that would be involved. Now, fan films are complicated enough on their own, but in trying to enter the world of Waterworld on a fan film's budget, I can't even fathom it. Yeah, I think it was originally thinking some kind of like animated thing to avoid actually shooting at sea because we know how that kind of goes. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> animated sounds like a really good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, animation is something you can do in your bedroom. It's something you can do on a computer and you can create that whole world just within that space. Um, but maybe that's the future project after I run out of creating lore and production content on the Atoll channel, maybe I'll start making some fan film as well, or fan fiction. That'd be fun. Speaking of animation, there is a surprising amount of animated content in these two minutes. As I mentioned, we are diving down into the underwater city. As we mentioned last week, the Mariner finally relented and said, fine, I'll take you to dry land, and they started descending. And as we come in on this week, the Mariner is lighting flares, tossing them aside, and Helen is essentially waiting to hit the bottom, a bottom that she doesn't necessarily know about at this point. 
Yeah, truly into the abyss here as we descend to what is one of the biggest revelations of the film, I think. Maybe one that much of the audience saw coming because it is told at the beginning of the film that the earth has been covered in water, but it's certainly a revelation for Helen as she descends into the dark. We mentioned the other week that Helen's reaction to seeing a diving bell seems misplaced, that you would expect something like that to be more common on a world covered with water. It's something I often think about, actually, is why wouldn't they know about the bottom of the ocean? Or why would the atollers or the smokers or the inhabitants of Waterworld not try to see what is below, even just to let a bucket down and see what they scoop up? Uh, is something I've always thought about. Why are they not aware of the bottom of the ocean? Especially since when we watch this scene and it's revealed through, I guess, context clues, location clues, set dressing, that this is the Mile High City, this is Denver, the Mariner is able to dive down to the surface. So it's not so prohibitively deep that no one would ever find it. Right. There's also the aspect of Helen, who is not equipped with gills or fins or anything special. She can only handle so much pressure before she starts to go unconscious and die. So this really can't be that far down. I don't know those numbers. Okay. I don't know the numbers either. I was wondering if you but had done the research. <laughs> like humans all by ourselves really can't go that deep. Yeah. Oh, no, not at all. According to the making of book, I think they say they were thinking that it was 400 feet underneath the surface of the water, which doesn't make sense itself because Denver's highest skyscraper is 300 feet. Yeah, I was reminded of a scene in West Wing where they're talking about how much money they're spending on space exploration and how it's like a lot and people kind of freaking out about how much we're spending in outer space versus how much we're spending here. And there's hungry and homeless people here, but we're spending money on science. And their response to that is that it is human nature to go out and to explore, to wonder what's next, to go find out what they can't see. It's what we do. We are driven to explore. And that applies to us now. As we're recording this, we just landed another Mars rover successfully. Excellent. Good job, NASA. <laughs> And we're always exploring more and more of the ocean floor. That doesn't change, or shouldn't change, if there's been some kind of cataclysmic event in the world. These people in Waterworld should be just as curious and exploratory as we are. Mm -hmm. But they're not. Speaking of numbers, I looked up the shooting locations for this movie. The YPO Valley, which I probably horribly butchered, so apologies to anybody listening from Hawaii. The valley is listed at having an elevation of about 2,000 feet. So if we're throwing around numbers here, from the shoreline to the lip of the valley, that's about 2,000 feet. And if that's supposed to be the peak of Everest, and Everest is, I think, what, 29,000 feet? I think we said last episode? Yeah, I think so. We're fudging a lot of numbers because... Denver is not 2,000 feet below the peak of Everest, plus however much water it would be. The math definitely does not check out, to say nothing of how deep light can penetrate into the water, which is another thing we mentioned the other week. And something that is very helpfully pointed out in your video, Alex, is that if they were to go that deep, 
down into Denver, it would not nearly be as clear lighting wise. Oh, no, I, I think it would be actually pitch black if they were descending even 400 feet and there would be no light penetration at that depth. Obviously, you mark it up to like some creative license being taken as far as like they wanted to create something that is not realistic, but that is very pleasing to the eye. And I think that these two minutes of Waterworld are very pleasing to the eye. We've given enough criticism to the realism of this scene that I think we can move on to how magical the scene actually is. We're riding along with Helen, knowing absolutely nothing that's going on. And then as we dip down with the camera, the tops of these derelict buildings start to rise from the bottom of the frame. And it's ghostly, it's haunting, it's awe-inspiring, and it's really, really stinking cool. And the music, too. The music is so great as they're descending down. It's mysterious. I'm fascinated by these structures that all we have left of them is the skeletons. Mm. And these two individuals who have no context for what this place used to actually be like have no idea what they're swimming into. There's a submarine (laughs) in the middle of downtown Denver. (laughs) They don't know that it shouldn't be there. I would argue that underwater is a submarine's natural habitat. But But they, okay, seriously, they don't know (laughs) that there should not be a submarine anywhere near Denver. For all they know, Denver was a coastal town and there was a seaport and a naval base and submarines naturally are around. They don't know how strange this place is. That is kind of the magic of the scene. Us as the audience know that there's a nuclear submarine in the middle of downtown Denver, like... That's just kind of like those little tidbits in Waterworld that are what I like attached myself to the most is these like little tiny like, how did that happen? I have often wondered in the past about all the other boats in the world. Where are they? Why is the D's of all things the one that has survived so long? Where are the other boats? That includes submarines. Submarines are built to not need to go to port. They want to be out. They are self-sustaining. So they're an ideal vessel to flee to when the world is being covered in water. Mm. This sub being in Denver does kind of add to that lore that, yeah, this submarine was being used after the flood. And at some point, it was no longer functional. And that's where it landed. (laughs) I cannot imagine how frustrating it must have been for these submariners on the submarine. They had all of these radar systems and underwater charts, and then the water begins to rise, and all of their charts are now out of date, and they have to go around and (laughs) rechart things. Maybe that's exactly what they were doing in Denver, was recharting. I'm not even sure how nuclear submarines work, but I can imagine the the depletion of their fuel as they no longer know that they can like refuel. What happens? It could be their own society within that like little vessel as they cling to life. Yeah, they should be fine as long as they can figure out how to feed themselves, mm-hmm. how to clean their air and how to clean their water. The fuel should be very, very long-lasting. It's a nuclear reactor in there. So 
they're going to have nuclear waste and they're going to need new replacement fuel. But I think nuclear fuel lasts a long time. Yeah. I think that's a part of the reason why it's a good power plant is because you've got your nuclear fuel and it lasts you a long time. They still have to feed themselves, clean their air, and clean their water. Ignoring the possibility that the submarine we see in these two minutes has suffered hull damage and flooded in some way, you could, in theory, if it was dry inside, probably go in there. And unless it was flooded with radiation because of a core breach or whatever you want to call that, you could probably power it back on again and then just sweep out the bodies. <laughs> sweep out the bodies. <laughs> They could start an organo section of the sub. Mm. At the atoll, we saw they don't waste anything. Mm. Anything that's organic goes into that pool to be used. So same thing. Flush out the head and get mm -hmm. a little fertilizer vat going. Mm -hmm. They would have to provide their own light. And not everything does well in artificial grow lights. Mm. But, you know. Although, if you want to talk about growing things hydroponically and using artificial light to grow plants, I think Denver is probably a good city to start in, <laughs> considering the culture that exists in that city. I think so. And the surrounding areas in Colorado specifically. Do you think it's possible at all that there might still be people alive on that submarine? They may have lost their ability to propel themselves forward in the water, but that doesn't mean they're not still alive in there. Oh. Wow. 500 years, because that's supposed to be how far out Waterworld is. How many generations is that? 10 generations of people living underwater? Yep. How mixed are the demographics on a modern submarine? Zero. It's all men. Okay, so you're no not going to have generations. So yeah, you'd be they sweeping out to, skeletons. They would have to stock it purposefully. <laughs> you know, of families, I couples mean... and families. <clears throat> That's a pretty impressive whip. When you pop up on the surface and you're in a nuclear submarine, you roll up on an atoll and say, hey, ladies. You want to see the world? Yeah. Except it... not. <laughs> <laughs> like, Come see the world through a screen as it pings. Now, interestingly, we were talking off mic about the original screenplay. The original screenplay does have a working sub in it. Rick, maybe you know, it's like a gang of smugglers or something that are operating an old submarine. I'm glad you brought them up because the characters on the submarine, you've got three different Japanese men and one black woman mm -hmm. who is probably one of my favorite characters in that screenplay because not only does she speak Japanese and she's able to translate for these people in trading situations, but she's also got a bit of a BDSM kink. And so she's constantly <laughs> talking about her experiences with these other men and about how this one likes to be tied up and then when she's exploring with the mariner they go into a gymnasium and she's like oh imagine the fun we can have in here and the mariner is trying to ignore her oh my goodness wow <laughs> she knows what she likes and she's right. excellent yeah okay i had no idea that was part of the script <laughs> i love that original screenplay it's a wild one you could argue that the submarine in the original screenplay was turned into the trading outpost because it is a situation where the Mariner gets rid of Helen and Enola. But David Toohey and the other people who worked on the script after Mr. Raider, they twisted it and changed so many things. 
I'm really looking forward to hearing that script. I'm very much looking forward to bringing it to everybody so that they can hear all of the fun things that happen. Have you said on the podcast before what you're doing with that? No, I'm going to try and be very vague about oh, it. That okay. way it can be a surprise. Okay. It won't be as big of a surprise as what happened at the end of our season for Fury Road, but... That will never happen. That, that will never can never be, be that topped. surprise. <laughs> I want to duck into the book real quick because the reveal of this underwater city is handled a little different. We don't get to see it in wide shots, we're a bit more intimate with it as far as staying with Helen's perspective. The rig had descended to a depth where the sunlight no longer could filter down its rays, yet there were orbs of rose-colored light just below, beginning to light the world. Then, as the rig dropped deeper, she, meaning Helen, realized that the orbs were the fire sticks, the flares, still tumbling down slowly, charting a course for them, like glowing pink lanterns. Still falling, the rig overtook the flares, and they entered a murky twilight. What did this have to do with dryland? Nowhere in Waterworld could be wetter. And then the cage rocked to a stop, a landing softened by their water-cushioned fall. Something solid. She looked under her feet, and the cage was resting on something dark, something hard. She couldn't see anything, not even the mariner. At some point, he had slipped away. Where was he? Her breathing was getting shorter, and she felt trapped within her bubble. The world closing in, condensation building up inside it, smudging her vision even further. She calmed herself, fought the panic down, and rubbed the condensation away from the plastic, or whatever it was, rubbing a circle to look out of it. And there he was, the mariner. It startled her momentarily, but his reassuring motion, his mouthing of the word wait, steadied her. And before long, the flares caught up with them, tumbling down to bring an artificial rose-hued dawn that settled its light upon a vista that made her gasp. It was a wondrously jagged underwater skyline of a centuries-old city, riddled with a grotesque cancer of sea life, the massive tombstones of a culture swallowed by the sea. That last sentence. One of the best in the book, I think. I love the idea of being surrounded by darkness, and I'm really glad that Max Allen Collins called attention to Helen's minor panic attack of being trapped in this bubble so far in darkness a good reason why you leave enola up on the boat because you don't want a 10 year old freaking out inside of a bubble but just the reveal of sitting in absolute darkness and then the lights descend to reveal the landscape that part where they were talking about her nearing panic and needing to calm herself down that made me kind of panic a little bit it felt very real and visceral and uncomfortable mm -hmm. Because in the movie, the way that it's portrayed, of course, it's a movie, so it's very visual. They don't want to cut us off. They don't want to put us in darkness and wait around for the lights to fall and catch up so that we can see something. Of course, they want to show us this whole area so we don't get that claustrophobic feeling that Helen gets in the book. As we say a lot on this podcast, I like both ways for different reasons, but I really like that book the way that it goes. I think both are spectacular reveals unto themselves. The way that the book describes, yeah, the flares. Where do, where do the flares come from? Where right. does, how does this yeah. mariner have so many, all these flares? You can see that maybe like, I'm always wondering about the novel. Where did it come into production? Like, where was the film in production when the novel was being written? And maybe that's originally how the screenplay kind of played out was some kind of grand reveal with the flares catching up to them. But I also like how the film 
and maybe it's just the filmmaking itself is these miniature models kind of coming up and it's like all of the film yeah it's like this older style of hollywood that you just don't see as much anymore with the miniature models and the kind of almost a little off like composition of the mariner and helen descending is just why i love the scene everything that physically existed looks amazing and you're right the comping of Helen and the Mariner, it does look a little off, but when there's so much detail around them, I think it's easy to ignore, especially with the way they moved it out. In your video you made about this scene, you talked about how they went to an astronaut training tank in order to film these blue screen scenes. So Kevin Costner and Gene Triplehorn are in a zero buoyancy tank, and they've just set up a bunch of blue screens around them so they can do these shots and that's really cool because astronauts are inherently awesome they're arguably the most awesome among us and they got to play in their pool right it's great imagine how arduous that shoot it must have been what i always think about when i'm thinking about that shoot is that you can't even speak to each other the crew can't speak to the cast the director can't speak to the crew and everybody's just kind of signaling with their hands what they want the shot to happen I can't imagine how arduous those days of production must have been for Costner, Triple Horn, and the people shooting the film. And interestingly, I was just reviewing my notes from the video I made about the sequence. They're actually swimming in place, and maybe that's why a lot of these shots look a little janky, is because they were swimming in place with fans blasting at them. And then the camera person was actually moving the camera towards them as if they were moving forward. So it's just like this optical illusion they are creating in front of an underwater blue screen. Oh yeah, it gives the same disconnect as you see in modern Marvel movies where your superhero is supposed to be running faster than a normal person is supposed to be able to go. And so they'll give them those running mats. And so they will run and the mat will get dragged and it looks like they are running at an increased speed. But there's just something (laughs) weird about how much time their foot spends on the ground and then their foot seems to be sliding. Mm. It's that same sort of strange disconnect. Here, it's like, okay, would they really be moving at that speed with the Mariner kicking the way he is? Maybe not. Mm. It was 1995. Right, there's something charming about (laughs) being able to tell, yeah, this is from 1995. You know by watching it. Yeah, this is from the 90s. And that, I think, is an asset now to us. We are in an age of nostalgia where it's particularly popular to be nostalgic about things, which I think is always the case, but it just feels like it's really big right now. And we are very much into the 90s. So this is exactly the sort of stuff that we're like, yeah, this was awesome. I loved this. It's the perfect time to be into this movie. And this is early CG too. Um, All of the bubbles, all of the flares and everything, those are CG elements that were created as well and the lot of cg from this time is pretty bad looking but i think that the bubbles and the particle effects in this they work pretty well mm-hmm. they do especially the bubbles i think because if you had me guess what was cg and what wasn't i wouldn't have guessed the bubbles were cg i think they're pretty good and supposedly this whole entire film was a real slapdash at the end to like finish all these cg shots the Waterworld production team was pretty much going to every visual effects house in Hollywood to get these shots done. Like 
every single shot was almost handled by like a different VFX house. It's pretty incredible when you start like looking at how many people were assigned to this and how they only had a matter of six weeks to finish a lot of these VFX shots. It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) That is a lot of pressure. It's something that's still true in Hollywood right now. CG artists having to work insane hours and stuff like that. If you know a movie is going to have CG, why not arrange things so that you give them as much time as possible? Why are these things being crunched at the last minute? I don't understand. They make a lot of changes right at the end, I think, too. Very true. Just to put this in perspective, too, like this is one of the early films that was edited, not with physical celluloid. This film was edited in a computer, which was like unto itself kind of revolutionary in 1995 or 1994. Hmm. In the making of a book, they kind of talk about it a little bit. Oh, we used computers to edit this film. (laughs) Fantastic. Like that's a new technology at this point. Nowadays, it's like the only thing that gets used. Oh, for sure. Speaking of pressure that people are under, we've reached the bottom of the ocean. We get a close-up shot on the Mariner as he scoops his hand out of the bottom. And I have to wonder, is that a Pepsi can right there by his hand? Yeah, that's some product placement right there. A crushed Pepsi can. I'm not a Pepsi fan. I'm more of a Coke guy myself. I imagine if there actually had been some sort of endorsement or product placement deal that the can would have been turned a bit more in which it would have said, oh yeah, there is no question that this is a 100% a Pepsi can. And I can only imagine the sort of commercials that would have taken place of Kevin Costner out on the boat and suddenly he finds a floating case of Pepsi and he cracks one and open. He's like, yeah, Pepsi on Waterworld this summer. Check it out. I'm not sure that this is exactly the kind of movie that food items would want to be associated with, because do you really want to be known for being this non-perishable? For being 500 years non-perishable? In the post-apocalypse, there is one soda, and it is Pepsi. (laughs) It does remind me a little bit of The Road, another post-apocalyptic film where I think the child in the road tries soda for the first time and it's such a foreign thing. But I really do think, because you can clearly see half of the Pepsi logo. Yeah. I think this is a piece of product placement. If it is done on purpose, I appreciate that it wasn't in our face. It's enough that, yeah, you know it's Pepsi, but it's not like, ooh, look at me, I'm product placement. I'm a Pepsi can. They really committed to this being a derelict ruin of a city and did not, I guess, say, hey, let's have a couple of billboards still standing with some products on them that they can swim by a product on their way to the bottom. I think the only thing that could be closely associated with an advertisement is the donut that we see on top of that one building, Yeah, which isn't even for a real establishment. It's just a generic, what is it, seafood shop? Yeah, so the donut is actually an Easter egg that was placed there by... Stetson Studios, which did all the the miniatures for this sequence. And it was something that was like right around the corner from the studios. It's called Randy's Donuts. You can look up pictures of it online right now. And so they were paying homage not only to Randy's Donuts, which was around the corner, but they also changed the text. So it said Mike's Fish Shop, which is a reference to Michael McAllister, who is the visual effects director on the film. Nice. I might also be 
erring in calling it a donut because it looks like it has some extra details around the side to change it from a donut into more of an inner tube with some rope around the edges, which really makes <laughs> a lot of sense. You want an inner tube when it's a fish shop. Yeah. <laughs> and not a giant donut. Yeah. So if you got a Mike's fish shop and then it's a donut, you're like, what kind of what the heck is he doing to those fish? Why is there a fish shop in Denver? <laughs> it's it's a bold move, Cotton. I hope it pays out for him. <laughs> it might be the East Coaster in me hmm. saying this, but I feel like if you go too far inland, you should not order the fish. Right. There's a rule of thumb about, hmm. I think it's like 100 miles inland. Mm -hmm. Oh, is that right? That seems a little low, though. Because, I mean, you can ship fresh fish. Like, that's not a hard thing to do. But yeah, there's a rule of thumb about proximity to fresh fish. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, at a certain point, it's just going to be frozen fish, and that's what you're getting. And It's just not as good that way. Oh, that's, we're lucky. We're lucky. We are. <laughs> Speaking of seafood, I imagine that this would have blown the production budget way bigger than it needed to be, but I think it would have been pretty cool to see examples of deep ocean wildlife that has moved into the city. Not necessarily another instance of a whale fin showing up, but maybe mollusks or octopuses or deep sea fish, anemones, things that had moved in to reclaim this new ocean floor. I think that would have been really cool to see. I absolutely agree. That would have been very, very cool. I have speculated that the production wanted to have more sea creatures within the scene, but given that the whale fin was kind of... I like the whale fin. I like how the CG looks. It looks janky, but I like that. <laughs> and also reading some other stuff about the tracker sharks, which were cut for the film, because test audiences, and maybe we can get to more of that at the end because we do see the fins of the tracker sharks. But I think that they had such a bad experience with the whale fin that they were really afraid to add more sea creatures to the scene yeah. and kind of kept it sterile otherwise. I imagine that it's incredibly difficult working with any sort of underwater creature because I don't imagine you can train them in the same way that you can a horse or a dog or even a sea lion. Right. But that being said, I'm sure there's specialists out there who have a team of crabs that are trained to skitter on mm. command. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah. With that said, <laughs> the, the scene is kind of strange. That there aren't any sea creatures. Yeah. It makes the world seem dead. Yeah. And if the world is dead, then humans can't live on it. We're dependent upon other life on this planet. Crazy fan fiction that I just came up with in my head. What if the nuclear sub kind of just took out all of the creatures in that area with its toxic radiation? Ooh. That's an excellent point. In which case, they probably shouldn't be swimming so close to it. But Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I think... All of this discussion about a lack of life, that probably contributes to Helen's expression as the Mariner lifts up this handful of dirt and drops it in front of her. Between this here and what we're going to see next week, all hope of finding dry land evaporates, and she is left incredibly depressed. And it's really upsetting that someone like Helen, who has held on to this belief for so long... This one diving bell trip has completely destroyed her outlook on life in general. Yeah, this trip is soul crushing. 
information. While we find it so incredibly fascinating to see these things, our life and future isn't on the line. Mm -hmm. I think that that revelation also happens at a pretty good point in the film because the scene following this is kind of the lowest point Mm -hmm. in the three-act structure, as you'd say. is the lowest point where, you know, they're all separated. The trimaran is destroyed. So, like, the scene leads in really nicely to that lowest point in the narrative. Mm -hmm. I know it's not a one-to-one comparison, but the idea popped into my head, so I might as well share it. The Mariner bringing Helen down to the ocean floor is akin to a parent wanting to prove to their child that Santa isn't real, and so they follow the mall Santa home. Come on, Timmy, hop in the car, and they just follow this guy all the way to his house, so they see him get out of his car and take all the stuff off and check his mail. (laughs) You take someone who has all of this light in their life, and then you extinguish it. (laughs) Wow. Yo, crushing. That's a bit dark. Definitely see where you're coming from on that analogy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Speaking of dark, I can't remember the name of the movie, but there's a movie where two people get caught on a ski lift in the middle of a snowstorm. Oh. Let me try Googling that real quick. Is it? It's like Jaws, right? No. It does. Are there? Is there a group of wolves that attack them from below? That sounds right. Wait, I, Doesn't I know this one movie. of them like sacrifice the other one to stay I've alive? Seen, like I think I've seen this one. All right, don't get confused, but it's a 2010 American film called Frozen, but not yeah. that Frozen. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and yeah, it's about three college students. They're spending a weekend snowboarding and skiing. They become stuck on a chairlift while climbing Mount Holliston when the ski resort closes before they finish their run. So they are just stuck in a ski lift. And I don't know if that's something that existed in people's minds as they were thinking about it, but you could imagine skeletons on this ski lift from people in that situation. Like, oh, oh, that is grim. The world is flooding. Better get one last run in. I don't know. <laughs> well, at that point, I think all of the, the snow might have been already melted. So they right. might have just been doing some uh, some grass <laughs> runs down the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> down those slopes. That's enough of me free associating ski lifts. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen that movie and I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a thing I remember because I grew up skiing actually here mm. in New Hampshire. And um, that was something that my parents always warned me about. Don't get stuck on the chairlift if they close early or something. One of the funnier details that you had in your video about this scene is that the closest ski resort to Denver is like 60 miles away. Like, uh, Yeah, because they're in downtown Denver. Yeah. And then they're suddenly out at a ski area for one shot. Nice shot, too. But yeah, when I researched it, the closest ski place is like uh, 60 miles away from downtown Denver. That's too far. It's too far. I don't care if the trimaran is in trawling mode and dragging them along. Like That's too far. <laughs> Speaking of the trimaran, let's pop up to the surface where Enola is waiting by the depth gauge. And as she looks off to her side, we see two fins in the water representing the tracker sharks that, Alex, you mentioned earlier. And it is the very tail end of the clip. I'm talking about Mm. last two seconds at this point. But I love the inclusion of the sharks because there is that old wives' tale that sharks can smell blood in the water from 
however many miles away. So they mm. make the perfect bloodhound stand-in on a water world. It's a nice piece of lore building, yeah. And I must say, there is a depiction of these tracker sharks in the making of book that is quite terrifying. These are not the sharks that you think of that are just normal scary. No, these depictions are like ultra scary. Let me see if I can pull the book off the shelf real quick. Because, Julia, I want to get your live reaction to seeing these things. Okay. Oh, that book. That book has so many bookmarks for me. <laughs> it's all dog-eared. <laughs> here we go. All right. So here we have tracker sharks. What? <laughs> okay. These pictures, this is why people hate sharks. <laughs> because these sharks want to eat you. They want to kill you. They hate you. And they are coming for you. They're terrifying. I suspect they're supposed to be some kind of mutated shark as well, like everything in Waterworld. The eyes are sunken into the skull of the shark, which that's the most terrifying aspect of them. I really, I've always wanted to see, because they did do the CG for that scene, and it did exist at some point of the tracker sharks, but never leaked. Oh man, yeah, I'd love to see that. Even if it is super janky, I want to see that. <laughs> I'm especially disappointed that they didn't include them because there is so much use of sharks. And I know I've mentioned this before, listeners, but in that 1991 screenplay that I'm always going off about, sharks are all over that place and they are sharks on leashes. And like, how awesome is that of pirates <laughs> using sharks on leashes to menace the people that they're threatening? That's amazing. I wish we'd gotten that. Is pretty great. I believe there is like a cut of the film out there that was very early on. I think maybe it wasn't even finished CG shots. There were maybe just pre-visual shots of this of the tracker sharks. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to be released from cages underneath the trading post and then to go and track the trimaran as Kevin Costner is bleeding out because he got shot by the deacon. Mm -hmm. And maybe you already went over that in an earlier episode. We did. Alex, you've read the novelization. And speaking of Kevin Costner getting shot, do you prefer the Deacon shooting the Mariner from the trading post, or do you prefer the smoker with the crossbows mounted on his hat? <laughs> oh my god. A deep reference that I had totally forgotten. I had to pause there for a second. Yes, that is one of the most bizarre of all <laughs> the differences between the novel and the actual movie is that the bleeding blow that hits him is from a smoker's cap. Is that right? Yeah. Crossbow hat. Crossbow oh, hat. I love yes, the crossbow hat so much. <laughs> it's so good. Oh. Um, <laughs> crossbow hat, man. When you're given the option. Yeah. Always choose the crossbow hat. <laughs> On that note, we've come to the end of this episode. Alex, are there any other parts of this movie that you have a deep and abiding love for that you'd like to talk about today? I could go on and on like about how much I love the attack on the Atoll, how I love all the miniature work of the Ds, and how even like even the traitor outpost I was just kind of thinking about and like the opening action. Oh my gosh, the smoker sky boat in the middle of the film. These are all great action sequences, and I'm a fan of action, and I could just go on forever about all of these. The moments in between these, mm, you know, 
not the best sometimes, sometimes outright really, really bad. Yep. But, you know, when Waterworld hits, it hits. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, some some of the the bad moments in the movie, though, I yeah, I have to make a video about some of the bad moments, yeah. I think, just to call them out. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Julia, I'm, I'm like... I am proud that you can sit through some of these moments, seriously, because this yep. this movie hates women, I think. Oh, it does. Well, we watched Mad Max for four <laughs> movies. I'm used to people hating women. I mean, it doesn't sit any better, but... Nope. Okay, one last question. Since we're rounding that 30-year nostalgia thing, when it comes to Waterworld, would you prefer a straight-up remake of the 1995 version a late stage direct sequel or would you like them to remake Waterworld but using an older script hmm. as a fan of the lore of Waterworld I want to see a sequel or even better maybe a prequel to Waterworld I want to just see more of the societies within Waterworld I'm not even necessarily attached to the Mariner and his story but yeah I think a sequel or a prequel that kind of fills out the universe before the Mariner's story would be what I would want most out of anything from this franchise. Whether that's a comic or maybe a video game, probably not a video game, probably a comic. That would be great for me. That would be great for my YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) As for us, we are going to wrap things up for the week. Alex, as you know, it's always good when two drifters meet on the open ocean that something is exchanged. So could you please let our listeners know where they can find more of your content? Julia and Rick, thank you so much for having me. For these two minutes of Waterworld, they're one of my favorites. I feel really honored to be a part of your podcast and to have this opportunity to kind of just dissect this and just to talk with you guys. You guys are so freaking cool. (laughs) But yeah, you can check out my videos. They're super cool deep dives about the Waterworld universe and about the production of the film. The channel is called The Atoll on YouTube. I also have an Instagram where I'm posting production stills and different concept art from the film. That's also The Atoll on Instagram. Excellent. Come back next week. We will see Helen struggle to reconcile her worldview with what she's seen. The smokers will arrive and the deacon will finally get to meet the mutant that's been giving him so much trouble. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 56. See you next time.